a God who has given us amazing, amazing grace. We stand in awe that you would redeem a sinful, rebellious people like us. Your grace is so amazing. May we live each day poured out to you. Thank you. Thank you for life and breath we don't deserve. Thank you for all the blessings you pour upon us and you lavish upon us, your grace. Thank you for your son. Thank you for your word. Help us now as we open up your word to be clear, to follow where your word is leading us. In your son's powerful name we pray, amen. As you're being seated, children, through fourth grade, you're dismissed to your classes. And you can also be turning in your Bibles to Acts chapter 12 is where we will be today. Acts chapter 12. Now, for those of you who have uh, who've known me a little bit for the time I've been here, you know that uh, I have family that's out in Pennsylvania. And so for the last 12-some years that we've lived out here in Wisconsin, we've been taking the old annual trip out to see my folks. And as we're on our way out there, we take the Pennsylvania Turnpike, like all good Pennsylvanians do, and Along the Pennsylvania Turnpike, right outside of Pittsburgh, you always see these signs for the Flight 93 Memorial. And since we like to travel like good Yorgies, we don't have time for that. We've got to get to the task where we need to go. And so for 12 years, my wife has said, hey, wouldn't that be neat to go see that? And for 12 years, I had said, no, that's 20 minutes off the road, which means 40 minutes round trip plus more time there. We will be, you know, this is not in the, the plan, you know. Well, this last... Um, it's July, this, this, here, this month here, we were on our way back, and I must have had a weak moment, and I decided, let's stop at the Flight 93 Memorial. And not knowing what to expect, because obviously I'd never been there, we go down this road, and as we're going, it was just like any old country road that has ever existed in Pennsylvania with nothing on it other than a bunch of white red barns and corn. And as we get to this Memorial, we enter into now a national park. And you're like, I didn't even know there was a national park out here. And as we enter in, we go through the whole thing and we get to this museum. And I've been to hundreds of museums. And you open up the museum doors and you're expecting to hear the hubbub and noise of a museum. But there was a ton of people in there and it was quiet. And immediately it was one of those awkward things because I'm trying to, in my own mind, in my, you know, the clock is ticking to get back to Wisconsin for who knows what reason. And in my mind, I'm trying to hurry through this museum. But all of a sudden, as I'm going through this, I'm starting to stop. And I'm starting to see there's a group of people who up until that day had no earthly clue who each other were that are now put together in names that literally, as we went down to the crash site, are written on marble. Names that, up until that day, nobody knew. Nobody even would have cared to have known. You may not even have met these people ever in this world. And as I'm reading the museum, little sketches about them, they're starting to talk about a pilot who had missed that flight, a stewardess who didn't make it on there, people that had missed the flight, and now times where all of a sudden the plane was a little bit lower so people could call relatives 
and you're listening to those things. And as I'm reading this, it was interesting. It was not written from a God perspective. And they're talking about how all these people just seem to happen to be together at that day for a specific reason. And because I believe God is sovereign, and He is, I'm looking at it through different eyes. And I got to see that a sovereign God had placed each one in that specific place for a specific reason. And on that day, all those people crossed the finish line with the days that God had given them. And there was nothing they could have done to stop that. And we'll see in our text God's sovereignty being played out. Because I'm sure that day they had different plans for their lives. But yet on that day, God had said, no, your time is up. So with that in mind, I want to come to today's passage in Acts chapter 12. And we're going to see without a shadow of doubt that God is sovereign. But I want to pause there for a moment because many times we attach that to situations. Many times, sadly, we attach it to situations that are in our favor. Like something happens in our favor and we say, well, you know, God is sovereign. I'm so glad that happened. Or many times we'll also attach it to situations we can't fully grasp. And then we just say God is sovereign. But do we fully understand what that means? And honestly, I don't know if we'll ever fully understand it in this side of eternity, but I think this passage gives us a great insight on how to grapple with this topic, with this truth. That's why today's title, we're going to see that God is sovereign, even as I call it, over sovereign rulers. Those who think they're in control, we're going to find out, no, God is sovereign. So let's turn in our Bibles to Acts 12, and we'll start reading. About that time, Herod, the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. Interesting start to this chapter, isn't it? We first need to make sure we understand who are the main characters in these two verses. So who is Herod? Well, Herod is not the same Herod that when Jesus was being born, remember we had Herod that would send the soldiers off to Bethlehem to kill the infants? That is not the same Herod because, remember, Jesus and Joseph and Mary head off to Egypt to escape Herod, and in Matthew 2.19, Herod dies, and that's why they come back and they live in Nazareth. And that Herod was known as Herod the Great, more self-proclaimed, but he was known as Herod the Great. This Herod is a totally different Herod, but they use the same term, Herod. And this Herod here was raised up in Rome, and he comes to the throne through murder and bribery. King Herod, also we know he, as the passage will describe, he loves popularity. He wants to be well-liked. And so, since he's ruling over the Jews, he's going to do many of the Jewish practices of that time period. He's going to be involved in that, all to position himself for popularity. We're also going to see here as well that he sees the Jewish Christians as a disturbance. He sees them as something that would disrupt his popularity, and so he's going to act on it. But we also see in this text that for those of you who have been in administration, you may understand this a little bit, and so try to follow with me. There are certain things that come to your table that you didn't go out looking for. There are certain disturbances, we want to call it, that come into your lap. And then there's other ones you decide to go do, if you, if you understand what I mean by that. There's the ones that like, oh boy, this just came my way. And then there's the ones you're like, this is actually something I, I'm deciding to do. This text carries with it that Herod 
willfully determined in his heart and mind that I'm going to persecute these people to gain popularity. This was not a disturbance that the church was like rebel rousers and he's like, I'm going to quiet these guys. This was, it's a conscious decision that Herod made. And we will know it's an evil decision from an evil man to persecute the church. But notice so far, we have Herod deciding something, Herod executing his plan of getting James and Herod killing James. And we notice real quick there, God doesn't intervene. The word God's not even in the text. So hang with that thought for a moment. Let's go down and let's figure out who this James is. This is James. James, one of the inner circle of Jesus when he was down here on earth. Remember Peter, James, and John? So the same James that saw the Mount of Transfiguration, the same Peter, James, and John that Jesus many times would turn and do a little more intimate teaching from his other disciples. We would call them the inner circle of a way, as well as James and John were both the sons of thunder. So we know that carried with it a little bit more of an outgoing personality with it. And at this time, too, we know that at least James was predominant enough in the church that when Herod was looking to take somebody down, he went after probably one of their more predominant leaders, being James. And you can see in the text, if you read ahead, Peter also gets taken, too, so we know he's picking off leaders of the church, Herod. But right around now, I want us to think. Think like the two-year-old and three-year-old. And what is the two- and three-year-old question? Why? Right? I want to go, why? Because if you think about James, why James? He had so much to give. He literally could tell you the words of Jesus because he literally heard them, right? What a gift to the church. What a gift to this new body, this new movement that is starting. Once you want as many eyewitnesses around, God, once you want them? But yet an evil man, and almost in just a because he must have either ate something wrong or whatever, just gets ticked off and just decides to go and do evil things. Out of all of the people on earth, in Tim's way of thinking, that would have a little bit extra protection, you would think it'd be James, right? You know, he's one of the original disciples. But why? Where was God during this time? Was he distracted on something that was going on in Samaria? Was he more interested in what was going on in North America or South America that he, he missed Jerusalem? Was he asleep? Was he distracted? Well, Psalms 2. In the Psalms, we have Psalm 2, verses 1 through 4. I believe it gives us an answer. Why do the nations rage? And the people's plot in vain. Notice how they plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying this, let us break or burst our bonds apart. Let us cast away the cords from us. Another way of saying, let's rebel and do our own will. Notice what the text is saying. Why do they do it? Why do they rebel? And what is the Lord's response to their rebellion? How does God respond when mankind says, we know what's best and we're going to do our own way, and you know what, Lord? You're not going to stop us. What do we see here in verse 4? In verse 4, we see very clearly, he who sits, 
Not he who is pacing in the heaven wondering what he's going to do. He who sits in the heavens laughs. Almost like, if I could put in my Tim Yorgi vernacular, nice try. That's the best you could do. That's the best plot you could come up with to thwart my plan. The Lord holds them in derision. It's in another way of saying the Lord. It's almost this mocking tone, as if you thought your plan was going to succeed. What we see here is the fact that God is using an evil king and even evil motives to do what? To promote one of his saints to glory. In an act that, from our earthly speaking, looks like just a random act of violence, we know because God is sovereign, this did not take God by surprise. We know without a shadow of doubt that God was in control and it was James' time to come home. Psalms 139.16 says this clearly, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed from me, when yet none of them. There was no days written before we were born and they were written to know what? Our appointed time. We know this is the fact as well because if you remember back in Mark, when we were in Mark, Mark chapter 10, remember when James and John are arguing about who's going to be the greatest, who's going to sit on the right hand, the left hand side, you know, they're having this discussion and Jesus looks at them and says, you don't even know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the same cup I drink or be baptized with the same baptism I'm baptized? And another way of saying the idea of cup there, are you able to die a horrific, sorrowful death? Are you able to be baptized like I am? Are you able to go through that suffering like me? And they said to him in verse 39, we're able. You know, if you think about that, and what does he say? Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. He knew how James was going to die. He knew the death that James was going to have. Because if you look at this death, look at the text, the idea of with it, Herod does not bring James out for a trial. Herod does not go through the whole trial crucifixion thing that most likely you would do a, someone who was evil in the Roman time period there. It's the same way that the Herod of old killed John the Baptist. Remember? At a party, he makes a quick decision, and they decide to kill. It's with the sword. This is the idea that carries with it that someone in the prison that James was staying in goes down there with the sword, take James out, kills him. No trial, no public thing. And then when the people hear about it, they seem to be excited about it. This death here was a quick and final call home. When the days that God has given you come to an end, when that finish line is there, it may come suddenly. Your finish line may come in a heart attack that you thought you had multiple hours left, multiple days left, multiple years left, and boom, you hit the finish line. It could come in an accident, it could come by sword. You may have the blessing as you get closer to your finish line that God says, listen, here's an illness for you to carry. But remember, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
That illness may help you know when the finish line is coming, so you live differently. Notice in that picture there, each one has its own lane. Each one has its course that God has laid out for him. There's one that beat the other people across, but there's other people that are still finishing their race, some further back than others. If you think about that for a moment, when God calls you home, are you ready? When the days that were written in the book and that last day comes, are you prepared? James crosses the finish line. But from an earthly standpoint, we're left with many questions. I mean, think, put yourself in that situation. Why James again? The timing is, doesn't seem right, does it? When we lose someone suddenly, many times we're left with the question, why? This was not what I expected. I'm not ready. I wanted to say goodbye one more time, aren't we? We're left with that. Without a doubt, I, you could almost suspect, now the text doesn't tell us, but you would, you would have to imagine that John and Peter are reeling to the death of James. This is one of our friends. This was one of our partners. This is one of our guys that we walked through so many things together. And he's gone. Do I trust God? Because if I trust God, I trust His sovereign plan. Because the question that is in front of us is, how do I respond to situations I don't fully grasp? I can imagine the response of the church. God, anyone but James, we need him. Yet the death of James made it possible for what? New leadership to arise. He removed one to make way for another. And that was God's sovereign plan. And notice this. You would think that when an evil act is done, the guy who does the evil act should lose popularity, right? No. What do we find out? What does Herod's popularity do? It skyrockets, and it goes even more, and so Herod again in that popularity. And the church is going, why is it that evil is prospering? Why does it look like I turn around and everybody that's doing wrong is doing better than me? We see this in the passage here. And so what does he do? Well, we want to be popular, right? James gave me popularity. Let's, Peter, we'll take him and we're going to kill him. Yet what we see here in these next several verses here is a beautiful glimpse of God's sovereign plan being unveiled for us. A beautiful behind-the-scenes look. So let's follow this passage here as we read in verse 3. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of guards, soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and centuries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, the angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself, put on your sandals. And he did so. 
And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him, and he did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but though he was seeing a vision. When he had passed the first and second guards, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them on its own accord, and they went out along, along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. There were many gathered, and they were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came answered. Recognizing Peter's voice and her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brother, and then depart, and we went another way. Now when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the centuries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went from Judea to Samaria, uh, Caesarea and spent time there. This brings us to the second point. Our second point we see here is that, Peter, God is not through with you. We see very clearly that in all earthly speaking, we think Peter's going to die. He's just next. It's just a matter of time. But we see very clearly that God is not through with him yet. There's a couple of things I want to point out to give us an understanding of this passage. So the time period, it's during the festival of unleavened bread. Again, this is Passover. Jerusalem would be packed with Jewish people, celebrating God's deliverance from slavery in Egypt, as well as looking forward to that future Messiah that's going to come, that future leader that is going to come. And so what we see here is Herod, who knows the Jewish custom, is going, hey, look, this can work in my favor. I can do things that are popular for the Jewish people so they will like me. So I'm going to get rid of James, and now I'm getting rid of Peter. My popularity is just going to skyrocket. Second, we see that Peter is under heavy protection and he's well-guarded. And you may go, why is he so well-guarded? Well, if you remember back in Acts chapter 5, verse 18, Peter is put into prison and an angel of the Lord lets him out and the next time they know he's in the temple again teaching. And they're going, wait a minute, we thought you were in prison, now you're back out here. So Peter at least was known for a guy that didn't stay put in prison for too long. All right, And so without a doubt, I, you know that Herod has heard about this. And he's saying, not happening, to the point where we're literally going to chain you to two guards. The chances of you escaping that are pretty slim, all right, let alone how deep he's in the prison. Also notice the church's response. Peter's in prison. The church responds with earnest prayer to God. And you go, what's earnest prayer? Earnest, the word earnest means to stretch or to strain. It carries with it praying in agony. It carries with it a heart cry out, God, help, God, act. We need you to respond. It's an agony prayer. It's those, we call those deep from the soul crying out to God. James, Peter, almost who's next, Lord? Is this all unraveling in front of us? 
I'd like to take for a moment, though, and put ourselves right at the end of verse 5. We don't know anything that's going to happen. James is dead. Peter's in prison, ready to be killed, right? Imagine yourself as a church member. And imagine what the world around you would look like when you were praying. They would look at you and go, you're a bunch of fools. Herod's power is irresistible. Where's your God? The axe has fallen once on one of their leaders. It's going to fall again for sure. Why are you even praying? I mean, look how chained up Peter is. Your God didn't stop him from being arrested. Where is your God? Nothing is going to happen. It is impossible for Peter to get out. And you can feel the tension in that when Peter actually is released and kind of the humorous story that takes place there, don't you? They're crying out, God, help, God, help. And in the back of their mind, they're going, I don't even know how that God help plays out. But I want to take a look at Peter now. Notice what Peter's doing. Peter's asleep between these guards. Now, we're not sure. The, the text doesn't give us why he's sleeping. Uh, some would say he's sleeping because he most likely was getting beaten up by these guards. They usually did not treat prisoners very well. So he could be sleeping by sheer exhaustion. That's a possibility. I like to lean towards the other ones that some of the commentators like to put their more spiritual spin, and I'm, I lean on this way because I think he's resting because he can rest in the sovereign hands of God. Knowing that when his finish line comes, his day will come. But until that day, he can faithfully rest in the sovereign hands of God. Now, we don't know. I kind of lean that way. It sounds great. It goes with the text, but we don't know why he's sleeping. But we know it's so sound that literally, what does the angel have to do to wake him? Strike him. I mean, it's, it's a blow. It carries with it the same type of blow because there's another striking in the passage later that literally kills Herod. This is a striking blow to wake him up. And then we see the days that Peter's even in, don't we? Uh, for any of you who have any teenagers in your world, this is a very great illustration of what a Monday morning looks like uh, before the kids are going off to school. There's a striking blow of trying to wake them up, right? And then there is get dressed, put this on, put your cloak on, eat something. You position them through, and all of a sudden they get outside the car when they finally get to school, and it's kind of like, what just happened? Where am I? And if you ever taught school as well, that first hour days that they're looking at you like, what is going on here? Until they finally come to their senses like second or third hour, and then you can finally teach them something if they remembered anything from the beginning days there. And we see here Peter, but I want to point this out in more, more serious note. Notice the passivity of Peter here. God is at work rescuing Peter. The angel doesn't come and say, here's some bed sheets tied together over the wall. Climb over. Peter, you got to do this. Here, help me with the jerry rig, this door open. No, is God sovereignly doing everything that was needed to get Peter out of prison? Because God is saying, my plan will not be thwarted. You think you can stop this, Herod. You think you're in control, Herod. No, you're not. I even have control over inanimate objects door open. 
And yet all the conniving schemes of keeping Peter in there are nothing compared to Almighty God. And then we see here beautifully, just like Nebuchadnezzar, after he was brought low, turned and praised God in Daniel 4.35, and he said, all the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Because God is on his throne. And what we see then is Peter coming to his senses. And notice, immediately once the escape is done, the angel is where? He's gone. Not needed. Peter then knows that the church is meeting, most likely, and he goes to the place where they're meeting. And when he gets there, the excitement of Peter being there is seen by Rhoda, who comes, unfortunately, she's not known for the greatest uh, things, but she's known for being excited, at least, that God answered the prayer. She's a young servant girl, and without a doubt, most likely, she'd been hearing what the adults had been praying, right? And she hears that most likely they have been praying that Peter would be released, And she goes to the door, and she's excited because, hey, God answered prayer. And she's trying to explain to the adults that God had answered prayer, and the adults are coming up with every possible way to excuse the fact that God had answered the prayer by literally saying, no, it's his angel. In my opinion now, I'm not putting motive on them, but it's my opinion you would think out of all the possibilities, I don't think that would be the first one to come to my mind, but hey, you know, I don't, I don't want to judge them more harshly. They were earnestly praying that God would, would work. And I think in my own self, how many times do I earnestly pray that? When would I have gone home that night? When would I have stopped? When would, if we had to schedule a prayer meeting for someone who was about ready to be killed, when would we stop? Or would we pray all the way through the night? Just a thought. So what we see here is the utter joy that God answered the prayer. To the point where Peter even tells him, hey, shh, 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 shh. let's not make too big of a ruckus here. You know, we're still in Jerusalem, and I'm still a wanted man, right? But what we see is that fervent prayer, even if it's mixed with doubt, is still more powerful than any earthly king, still more powerful than any chain, still more powerful than anything in this earth. God is in control, working His sovereign plan. But I want to make sure we're clear on this, because before we know this, we can just follow the rosy plan of Peter. What was God's sovereign plan? Peter, I'm releasing you from prison. But in order to release Peter from prison, what did that mean about the guards who were guarding him? They died. And all of a sudden, you sit here and you start going, wait a minute, I like the sovereignty of God when it plays out the way I like it. What about this part that didn't play out the way I thought it would, right? For the families that may have been touring the White House at that moment, and the plane goes down in Pennsylvania, and their lives are spared, and they go, yay, look at God's sovereignty, what about this family? But what should our response be? God is on His throne. Let the earth be silent before Him because he is working out his plan. One life he creates this way, another life he creates this way. And all the texts in my mind are flowing out of when God introduces himself to Moses, you know, and all of those things. Do we sit before the sovereignty of God and rest, 
knowing that he is at work in the world, bringing about his plan. That for the Christian should bring peace. That for the Christian should bring security. It should also, for the Christian again, as I said, bring rest. So am I resting in the sovereign plan of God for my life? Do I find rest there? Or when things aren't going the way that I'd like them, do I kind of chafe against it or do I submit? Next, we're going to see that Herod, and you see there at the end of the text, this is not going to be a good thing for him. He I mean, he lost one of his guys that was supposed to bring him popularity. So Herod, after making sure the guys were killed, that is your fault, all these things, and he, the, the men are killed, he moves on to Caesarea. And he's going to solve a situation in Caesarea. And so it's going to bring us to the third point that the sovereign God is going to say, Herod, God will not share his glory. So let's read the text here. Now Herod was angry with the people. This is verse 20. The people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord, having been persuaded, having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of God and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Again, what we see here is a city has ticked off Herod, so he goes to it, and we don't know what the reason why they got upset about, but the city is looking for some peace because they're, they, they need food from Herod. Literally, their you know, bellies are going to be empty. If they tick Herod off, he's not going to give them their food. And so when he comes in there, these, the cities of Tyre and Sidon are looking to say, how can we make this guy feel good? How can we, we, we show that we care about this man? And of course, Herod's going to come in and say, you should like me because I'm giving you food. And so we have this popularity thing going on. And uh, as I like to say, Herod stands up and gives a oration worth dying for. And he stands up and all of a sudden he shares his speech and the people, in, in the way of doing this, Josephus records that Herod at this time had sewn in silver thread into his clothing, so when he stood up, it, it literally shone. And he's standing in a way, if you remember in Ben-Hur when the horses are racing in that big um, amphitheater there, where you, the, the king would stand up and everybody would cheer, this is the same concept that's going on here. He gives us, and they almost in a chanting way, basically, you're not even human, you are a God. And immediately we have another striking of an angel. And this one is not to wake up to rescue. This one is Herod hitting his finish line. But his finish line came because he did not give glory and honor to God. And so I'd like to get really personal real quick. I have a finish line. I don't know when it is, but God does. You have a finish line. And what you do before that finish line with your relationship with the almighty, holy, sovereign God who is just, how you handle that now will determine what happens when you cross that finish line. If you do not repent of your sin and give glory to God, 
not to yourself. If you do not follow on the cross and, and ask God to save you and trust in His righteousness, not your own, if you do not get saved on this side of the finish line, when you cross that line, it'll be in punishment in hell forever. What you do right now will affect all of eternity. And I'm looking at you parents, and I'm looking at you kids. Which life are you getting ready for? Because if it's this life, you should be living completely different. But if it's a life to come, all of these things that so distract us, all these things that we pursue after are worthless compared to when we cross that finish line. And I don't know when your finish line is coming. But God does. So pause and think. Today could be your day of salvation. Don't put it off. Because what Herod does here, he does not give glory to God. Isaiah 42 verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I will give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. But I want to be clear this, these 23 verses here were not, here was God's plan, and we did that whole 67 detour that if you're ever drilling Elkhorn type of deal, all right? God's plan is here. His sovereign plan is happening. This is not a detour, because what does verse 24 tell us? That the word of God multiplied, and God's word went forth. This was in God's plan. James dying, Peter being put in prison, Herod's death, all in God's plan. And nothing thwarted it. And it's a beautiful text. And so my question to you is this. Am I giving glory to God for all things? Because I want to pause here for a second. It's easy. And we desire it. The praise of man is an alluring thing. I've got to watch it almost comically firsthand. If you've ever run a race, as you get to the point where you run by the crowd, people are trucking. The moment they turn away from the crowd, there's a lot of people that just stop and walk. And then it's when they come to the turnaround and they come back again towards that part of the race, you know what? Before you know, oh, they're trucking across the finish line like they've got this you know, unseen bursts of energy, and you're like, it's just because the praise of man was motivating you, you know? We, like, we want to be liked. I could guarantee you right now, if I told everybody in the room to turn and start saying good things to you, you personally, and we all stood up and started clapping, there would be a lot of you that would go like this, like, no, but okay. You know, keep it coming. I am enjoying that. Because we like to be complimented, Right? It's part of our, in a way, a sin nature. First of all, I want to make clear, we need to encourage each other. All right, let's make a genuine encouragement, not flattery. We need each other encouragement. I'm a, I really like words of encouragement. All right, it's one of, I guess they call this a love language of mine. All right, you just tell me something encouraging, you don't have to give me anything. Just say, good job, Tim. And I could run for a while. And then I struggle with this because why? And I'm like, was that me patting myself on the back? And I just play mental gymnastics. But anyway, at the end of the day, does God get the glory or am I looking for myself to be thanked? 
Because that's what we see out of Herod's life here. God is the one who deserves the glory. God is sovereign. His will will be done. So can I rest and have peace? Can I be bold knowing that all the glory belongs to God? So the so what is, am I trusting in the sovereign plan of God for my life? And does that enable me to follow Him with boldness and with clarity? Let's pray. Dear Holy Father, we stand in awe of Your sovereign plan. I don't understand it. But yet, because You are faithful and You are holy and You are just, I can trust it without wavering. Help us to do that. Forgive us for the times when we want to lay our own thoughts and our own plans, and we struggle. Help us to be a people that boldly follow you wherever you're leading. In your son's name we pray, amen. If you could please stand. 1 Timothy 6.15 is the benediction for today. He who is Christ, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. To Him be honor and eternal dominion. And all God's people said, Amen. I release you to a week of pointing others to the glory of God. You are dismissed.